and welcome to episode 18 of Etc. Etc. with Young Southpaw. That's moi, me if you ain't got your French tongue on. Now, this is bizarre, man. We had like a huge power outage during a storm recently, and finally, when the lights came back on, there was a note on the table that simply read, Free Jazz, the musical. Now, I had left the note to myself before the power went out, but, you know, I mean, what if... I mean, during the power outage, I mean, I wasn't in the same room the entire time. I mean, what if someone snuck in and replaced it with an exact copy of that same note? Woo! I mean, there's like a lot of implications there. I mean, first off, I mean, someone has the original, well, my original free jazz, the musical note. You know, note as in, you know, a piece of paper with with writing on, in this case, pen ink, you know, not a note as in, you know, the musical note as one might play in free jazz or any any genre of music, really, you know. But I mean, also, it means that someone could have been coming to give me a note that read free jazz, the musical. And I'm not sure what for, you know, my own personal gain. Or maybe they just needed to hide it. You know, someone was pursuing them. You know, like you see in the movies, they had to get rid of it real quick, you know? Somehow they snuck into my place during the storm. In which case, maybe maybe I shouldn't be mentioning it on this podcast, you know, if they're trying to keep it a secret. But I guess, I guess it's too late, you know? The information is now already out there, you know? A gift to the world, you know? I mean, besides, it could be that someone, you know, someone beside myself, you know, could want me to have this idea too, you know? I mean, I myself wanted myself to have this idea. I mean, that's why I left the note to myself in the first place, you know? Because it's not like they, when I saw the note again, they had left me any contact info, you know, like get in touch and we'll make free jazz the musical together. I don't think it was some like renegade financial backer who was just like, this is going to be the next big thing. You know, we need Southpaw in on this. He's always wanted to learn to play the bass clarinet. So it's crazy, you know, I mean, who knows what happened during that blackout? And, you know, like, the damned had that song, Wait for the Blackout. I mean, imagine if their chorus was like, let's wait for the blackout so that free jazz the musical could come to life. You know, uh, arguably less catchy, but who knows, you know? I mean, that's a great tune, you know? I mean, free jazz doesn't really sit with the other genres they were working in on the Black Album, but, you know, I mean, I love that record, you know? If they want Free Jazz the Musical to happen, why well, I'm happy to work on it with the damned. But, you know, I mean, very much like the world we live in, we can't really say for sure what the origins of Free Jazz the Musical are. I mean, of course, I'd like to claim authorship, but whew, that's a lot of power and responsibility, you know? And, like, I think, you know, I mean, no matter how it came to me, I think I've hit upon a moneymaker, you know? Like that old blues song, you know, Shake Your Moneymaker, you know, Elmore James, you know? And that first Black Crows album, too. I mean, in no way am I suggesting that the Black Crows are free jazz. Or if they are, I must have been wildly misinformed about this type of music. So if you want to hear more of this story, it's over on youngsouthpaw.com. You know, there's it gets pretty wild, man, you know. Bauhaus, the first free jazz synth pop band, you know. I, whew, I don't even know where that came from, you know. But it's episode 41 of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. 41, man, that's crazy, you know. I've been putting out collections of groups of 10, calling them the Decalogues, you know. Like those Kislowski films, you know. I'm not saying that these are European art films. They are very much Young Southpaw stories, you know. But last week I released Decalogue 4, 4th and 10. You know, kind of like that old HBO show, you know. And you can get them all over on Bandcamp, youngsouthpaw.bandcamp.com. Decalogues are, you know, pay whatever you want, free if you want, you know. Like some forms of jazz. And, and now musicals. Well, all right, I, I am very excited about today's guest, Mr. Kevin Kreiss, 
And actually, I explain why I'm having him on in the intro to the show. I mean, it's a story I've always wanted to hear. So let's get to it. All right. We're here today with Kevin Crace. How you doing, Kevin? I'm doing very well, Mr. Southpaw. <laughs> you got it down. <laughs> now, some background for the listeners. In the early to mid-90s, there was this record label called Humbug, which I love. Some of my favorite songwriters together on this label. And I didn't discover it until a bit later on, you know, being in America and all. Uh, but there isn't too much information on the internet about Humbug, so I thought I would come to the source. And Kevin ran Humbug, so who better than to tell the story? So, yeah, let's hear the story, man. How did it all start? Well, Mr. Southpaw, thank you for your uh, lovely and kind opening comments there. So, yeah, it's going back to the dark and, and stormy days of 1992 when I started it. And it's uh, over time, it's become a little bit of a legendary label, uh, probably because of its uh, lack of uh, sort of background information out there adds to the legend on it. But, yeah, 1992 is a really different time to today. You know, it was a time when there was no Internet. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't tell if anybody even liked you. You know, you had to go out physically to be hated. You couldn't sit at home and be hated. So going back to 1992, uh, there was no internet. There was no uh, nostalgia market. Uh, there was no Britpop even. Oh, it yeah. was uh, really sort of at the tail end of... Um, it was a talent of the uh, sort of American Nirvana scene, you know, the uh, and Riot Girl and uh, all of those things. They're really, sort of a time of anti-pop stars, mm. uh, and that's and I didn't like that. I mean, I had nothing against music, but I've always had this thing where pop stars should look like pop stars, mm. be like pop stars, and sound like pop stars. And so uh, that nineteen ninety two period was a really tough time if you like pop music and and decent songwriters, etc. So, yeah, around about that time, uh, I looked around and uh, I started my own label. I'd been in the music industry already for sort of uh, sort of best part of four or five years. And I'd worked at Pinnacle. I'd come from a big distributor called Pinnacle before that, uh, where we'd had artists like Kylie Minogue. And uh, we had all that Manchester scene that come through. And it was at that time that I decided, you know, um, I wanted to leave and create uh, my own label and a label that was sort of themed. Uh, sort of stylized label. I, I, I was really listening to people like L Records. Mm. Uh, you know, that's really, really where I was coming from that time. You know, me and my friends were well, some of the few people sitting around in London listening to L, listening to XTC, listening to sort of this esoteric pop music. And, and really, uh, you know, I thought the world really needed that at that time. Yeah, I love L, man. And yeah, I can definitely hear the L influence on Humbug. Like even oh, though... Yeah. To the artwork. I mean, artwork was such a big part of both labels. Yeah, and, and I nicked a couple of the L artists. I'm quite pleased to do so. You know, <laughs> Louis Philippe came and joined me, and I did some work with Simon Turner, uh, who was a king of Luxembourg. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I love that L. I thought, you know, um, there was probably very few people who were ever listening to it. If I'm being honest, I think it was it was so um, so. Um, specialized you know it, it didn't it didn't represent anything else that was going on in the music world at that time but it just really worked for me you know it was so beautiful um and you know and, and as much as i was i'd come from a punk background and 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 i'd come from a, an electronic background and an indie background i really like things like the ink spots you know okay. i love some of those old classic bands you know that had just been totally forgotten at that stage so so, yeah, when 92 came around, I started to look at acts to sign for Humbug Records. And uh, I just found that there was this whole amazing selection of uh, great, great British singer-songwriters um, that just were homeless. You know, they, they, they weren't able to make money. They weren't able to get signed. Uh, and they certainly weren't able to get any recognition in the media for how great they were. Mm. And so... So to some extent, to be honest, Southpaw, I, I sort of really had, um, you know, there was a, it was an endless list of people that I could have signed, you know, as, as an independent at that stage who, who were homeless. So, yeah, I, I started off, I think the first signing was Captain Sensible. You know, I, I'd loved the band, you know. For oh, me, yeah. they, they were my childhood band. You know, they were the punks, you know, not the pistols. They were the real punks. And Captain had split with the damned at that time. 
He'd been apart from them for a number of years. He was creating this wonderful, wonderful pop music. I mean, just simply brilliant. Uh, that it was almost impossible to get anybody to listen to. That was always the problem with 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 Captain and with with Humbug and all of these. It was, you know, a very difficult time to to get the media to support you because um, at that time there wasn't really the respect shown to 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 the to the great British artists there just wasn't that respect shown to them you know if they they, there was very much you've had your day you know bugger up and go somewhere else they 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 could have been if i hadn't have done humbug i could have opened this fantastic retirement home for elderly (laughs) musicians you know somewhere you know somewhere in the countryside in england that sounds fantastic they couldn't wander you know if they (laughs) we'd have to have people in the grounds to bring them back come back you're wandering Oh man, to think of the music being made there would be fantastic. Yeah, it would be wonderful. So yeah, so uh, so yeah, so it, we had these wonderful artists. So my first signing was Captain Sensible, uh, who, who was just a dream to work with, um, you know. And we went on to make I think four or five albums with Captain over that period of time. It, it, I mean, it was a very difficult period for Captain. This was the period when he was outside the Damned. Uh, critically, you know, nobody was really taking him looking at him in a great light at all we had no internet where you could you could build a fan base uh, and and you were you at that time the 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 newspapers the enemy the melody maker etc they were really the the gatekeepers of the music industry you know and they, they stood there with a great big clipboard and there was a my name and and the word humbug and the word written underneath double underscore saying do not admit <laughs> I think, yeah, you once referred to Humbug as England's most disliked label. Oh, I absolutely think so. You know, I mean, one of the artists we had was the great Colin Lloyd Tucker, who, who'd worked with the Gadgets. He'd, worked, he'd formed The The at one point, Matt Johnson. I mean, an absolute genius of a man. And he'd come up with a slogan, which really become one of the centre of ground slogans of Humbug, which was, two dozen people can't be wrong. Because that's how we felt. You know, there was 24 people who probably liked this shit that we were creating. But, you know, those 24 people, myself and the artist included, it really had to work. You know, that's how we had to make it go. You know, there was no stopping it. Those 24 people were critical to me. Excellent. <laughs> Colin so, Tucker, very interesting man. Um, you also reissued the the Dufy record, him and Simon Fisher-Turner, which is such an interesting idea. Yeah. I think it was is one of the earliest sort of alter ego albums where where um, Simon and Colin had created uh, two French ladies and this whole background to them that they 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 were these uh, legendary recording artists and they were missing they've been missing for years and uh, in the sleeve notes we 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 one of the things we always did was extensive sleeves you know we probably lost money on every release in in a sort of factory kind of way because some of them were so expensive to press and, 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 and cutouts from them and things like that. But in, this, in the defeat sleeves, we, we, we sort of said, where are these girls? If anybody knows where they are, tell us. And I, I think we ended up getting four letters back from people saying, I've seen them, including one, one from a gentleman who, who sent a cigarette butt saying, with lipstick on it, saying that I, I chased after them and they'd left this in the ashtray. It's the only evidence I have, you know. So it was, it was a magical time. You know, I, I don't know about anybody who bought Humbug, but we were really enjoying ourselves. You know, we were really enjoying ourselves at that time. And so, yeah, and so Colin was a really great artist. He, uh, he also did an album, apart from his solo album with me, or one or two solo albums with me at Humbug, he also did a great album with um, Paddy Bush, Kate Bush's brother, uh, called uh, Skylarking. An absolutely superb album, uh, you know, and by any, you know, and that was an interesting one because we tried to, the, the sleeve on it was this mull. Uh, it was uh, coming out of the ground and it was a stuffed mull. You know, we, we'd hide it from, uh, from a, um, uh, you know, a shop that, uh, that. Um, sold stuffed mulls. <laughs> sold stuffed mulls. Like one of those did. shops. Yeah. One of those shops, the mole shop. And uh, we, we decided we wanted it as a 3D cover, but. You had to put it into some form of vacuum to do this. So I think we exploded a mole in this vacuum trying to do this photograph before we realised it was impossible and we, we couldn't do this amazing 3D cover of the mole without blowing up the stuffed mole. Uh, so t- t- by the second mole, he became a, a, a normal shot coming out of the ground rather than a stuffed one. <laughs> so, yeah, so Colin was a great artist and still is a great artist. You know, they, these were all great people. 
They really, really were. So, yeah, so we had Colin, we worked with Paddy. Uh, we had Captain, who was superb. Martin Yule, obviously, who's gone on to, to, to really become the biggie from the, from the background of um, the Humbug stable. But believe me, in 92, um, Martin just couldn't get signed and, and was at the point of retirement. I, I pulled him out from retirement and said, Martin, you've got to, got to I, I don't know if I can swear Southpaw, but I said Go to ahead. him, you've got to fucking make some more records. This is just madness for you to retire. You know, you, you're clearly one of the greatest songwriters in this country's ever known. And, um, and from that, we, we, we produced two albums and an EP. Uh, the first of those albums was uh, The Greatest Living Englishman. Which you had, you brought them together with Andy Partridge, which that, is that's a magical great. Yeah, combination. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I brought them together with Andy. And, um, and that album has now really gone on to be absolutely critically acclaimed. You know, that's, that's one that, uh, that we always get remembered for. And the follow-up album, the Off-White album, which was with Louis Philippe. And in between those, we had the Let's Kiosk EP as a sort of a stepping stone between the two of them. But, yeah, I mean, a, a, a true genius. I mean, one of Britain's true geniuses. And, again, now actually recognised as such. You know, it's funny. The, the Greatest Living Englishman was almost like a seed. You know, um, it took us – we planted it in 1992. It's sort of – 15 years later, it sprouted, you know, and, and people started going, this, this is just unbelievable. And so um, it was sort of a 15-year germination and sprouting process to it. Uh, but, but, yeah, it's now recognised. I think it's into its uh, multiple replays now via Cherry Red. Vinyl is out. Uh, I was invited to the premiere of um, his last documentary on him, uh, last year, which was at the cinema. And then I note that there's a new documentary coming up on Martin. So he's going to be a double documentary man uh, within two years and, and really has gone to be sort of viewed as one of the great British eccentric songwriters of all time. Rightfully so, yeah. I'm mean, Two documentaries, that's, that's unusual, but it's definitely worth it, you know? Yeah, well, they, there's one called uh, The Jangling Man, I think is the new one, and Upstairs. There's Graham Bendel did a great documentary. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, upstairs, I can't remember the full title of it, and I, I, I apologise to Graham for not remembering it, but it's a superb documentary on Martin. And so there's another new one to come this year. And it's uh, and Martin, quite rightly, is getting the accolade he always deserved. Yeah. So tell me about bringing him and Andy Partridge together. I think that was a case of my two friends, Damon and Peter, and me sitting around of an evening getting completely stoned on weed, uh, <laughs> probably for, for about... Uh, a, a good few years. Um, I, I was sort of introduced to XTC by my friend Peter, who sadly passed away this year. And uh, myself, Peter, and Damon would sit around in, in my old bedroom. I was still living at home when Humbug was started. Oh, and wow. we'd sit around of an evening getting stoned and, uh, and listening to XTC. And it was just, it, it, it seemed there was a synergy between the two. Uh, in, in the capabilities, you know, in the understanding of music and, the, and what they liked. And it seemed like a terribly good excuse to reach out to Andy Partridge and have a conversation with him to begin with. Um, but as I wrote to him, I said to Martin, let's see if we can get Andy involved. And as I wrote to him, um, it turned out Andy was already a huge fan of Martin from Martin's previous band, The Cleaners from Venus. So it sort of all came together in one. It was the easiest thing to ever do. Absolutely easy. And he was a complete gentleman. Uh, you know, um, the other guys from XTC were there. They were lovely people. And, and even when we went on tour, we did a couple of dates with uh, Martin, which are almost a little bit like the legendary Sex Pistols dates, you know, like the 100 Club. You know, there's like 8,000 people claimed to have been at the Humbug, uh, the, at the 100 Club gigs. Uh, it was, we did these dates uh, a couple of dates. We did one in France and we did two dates in Japan. Sadly, we didn't do any English dates, which I think now was a mistake. Although probably the two dozen people would have turned up and no more. <laughs> but um, when we did the, the dates in uh, France and in Japan, um, Andy couldn't go and doesn't play live, as you know. But Dave Gregory from XTC, who still remains a very good friend of mine to this day, he came along. He played those dates with us as part of an all-star band. Dave Gregory, Captain Sensible, Louis Philippe, uh, Gary Dreadful, who's playing with The Damned at the time, a uh, couple of other great names, Tiv, a couple of other great, Nelson from New Model Army. 
Uh, that was a great lineup, and and Dave Gregory from XTC sort of stood in and 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 took the XTC position in the in the Martin Yule story of it of this these recordings. And there's a live album from Japan, right? There is, yeah. We 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 actually recorded uh, we recorded the second show, I think it was. Uh, we did uh, we did one show in Tokyo, one show in Osaka. We did uh, two press meetings at HMV where we did big press conferences and we did um I think we did a couple of magazines and I'm not sure we may have done a TV program called Okie Dokie uh, I'm a bit drug addled with, from those periods so but I, I sort of had vague recollections and then of course we did uh the French uh show which was a which was a a a, a black session yeah Benoit Lenoir which was it was the French John Peel and, uh, and that show was remarkable because we had people like Jean-Paul Gaultier turn up to watch us, wow. who'd become a massive fan. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, this was the incredible thing, to be honest, Apple. Hated as we were in the UK and totally misunderstood and not, not even recognised, you know, and, and, and almost like my artists had had their chance and they could all bugger off. When it came to, to, to um, what, the, in, at the outside of the UK, France, America, Japan, they got it. They got Humbug. They got Martin Newell. They got all the, they understood it. They looked at it and said, you know, the French viewed it as incredibly intellectual, you know, and, and so, you know, we, we were absolutely um, adored there, you know, and, and even when we went to Japan, when we arrived, you know, we, we, we'd sort of, I think we'd gone out from England with people throwing stones at us and booing. And literally, when we arrived in Japan, there was people at the airport screaming. It was like, really, it was like the Beatles. You know, it was quite incredible. And we had uh, people follow us all around. You know, I think Martin at the time was writing for The Independent, and he wrote a tour diary of it, uh, which I think probably you can find in The Independent Archives, or Martin will have a copy of it. But every day he wrote the Japanese tour diary, which The Independent published, which is amazing considering probably people are like what the hell is that about but um but we had the, what we called the tokyo duck patrol because captain and martin would be followed by 10 or 15 sort of uh late teenage uh japanese girls everywhere they went and dave everywhere they went they'd just be followed through the streets by these these people screaming you know it was a very <laughs> weird experience from from being disliked you know yeah wow excellent <laughs> now, what's really interesting to me is Martin Newell and Mikey Jordson are my two favorite songwriters. Ah! David Devon and his spirit wife. And I found out both had been on Hubbug. It just sort of blew my mind. So tell me about, I mean, from what I've heard about, I didn't discover Devon until later because I never really heard of him in America. But from what I heard, those early days were wild. Well, yeah, that was an interesting one because uh, we actually sort of signed all these, uh, as I say, thinking about the acts we signed, you know, we had people like TV Smith from the adverts. We had Reckless Eric signed. We had Louis Philippe, Colin Lloyd Tucker, Phil Schoenfeld, et cetera, et cetera. All of them had an established history. And then as we sort of grew towards the end of Humbug, we took on two new acts, which were uh, Gretchen Hoffner. Mm-hmm. In fact, there were three new acts. I'll tell you like One was Pictures of Tom. One was Gretchen Hoffner. And one was David Devont and his spirit wife. And I'd uh, sort of, um, I can't even remember where I first saw David Devont, but they really blew me away. You know, they were really, Britpop had arrived by that stage. It was just the beginning of Britpop, you know, uh, Jarvis was getting recognition, et cetera. And we sort of signed uh, David Devont. And they, to me, were always like the grumbleweeds of Britpop, you know. Uh, so they, they were a great band. I really loved, uh, I really loved their recordings, their material. And we did uh, a, a one single with them called Pimlico. And then we demoed an album with them. And unfortunately, we lost them at that stage to Arista. I, I think one of the problems with Humbug is I really hated having artists contractually tied down. Uh, it just felt really wrong, like enslavement. You know, tsh, tsh, tsh. And... Um, and by the time we got Pimlico out and, and David Devont were picking up traction with the press, um, you can't blame them at all, their manager at that point. They were like, thank you very much, Arista are offering us a blank check. Hmm. Thank you and good night. And they did, went on to do work with Arista and did an album. But 
the demos that we actually did, which I think they've released at some point, the Lost World of David Bond, are far better, in my opinion, than the, the later albums. They're far rougher and rawer, and they show the songwriting capabilities, etc., far better than, than, than the, the aristocratic material. But yeah, a really great band, a really great band from that time. Uh, and probably there's probably a finite time with those as well at that moment because they were sort of almost viewed a little bit uh, like novelty act as well because they were so visual. You mm. know, it was an incredibly visual band. Uh, but, you know, there's some really, really amazing songs like Light on the Surface. You know, I absolute respect for them. Wonderful band. You never had, I mean, aside from the greatest living Englishman, I think you never had artists demo anything for you. You just know them. No, I absolutely. Well, funny enough, David Devon. Yeah, I absolutely dislike the, the concept of demoing stuff because, <laughs> uh, you know, I can't play any instruments at all. You know, I literally probably couldn't even play a, a you know, tambourine. Uh, <laughs> and I always felt, you know, from my early days in the music industry, I realized the industry was full of frustrated musicians. I mean, absolutely full of frustrated musicians. And I always felt it was better not to be one of those and to be the industry side of it. And so for me, I, I didn't really, I just had total faith and didn't really need demos and didn't feel like I needed them or didn't feel like I needed to pin the artist down with the demos. Saying that, uh, Martin may have a different recollection, but with Martin, I, uh, what happened is, uh, uh, I'll tell you the story of signing Martin in a minute, which is, is an interesting story in its own right. Um, <laughs> But when, when I said to Martin, I'd like to do an album with him, sort of, uh, he said, yeah, brilliant. And then he, I think he comes to the office about two days later with all the demos. And I was like, well, you don't need to demo anything. <laughs> you can go and play whatever. You can go and play the spoons on it, whatever you I have total faith, you know. But he demoed it. And, and again, from that, you know, what an amazing album. I don't think we demoed any of the other albums. We didn't demo the Off-White album. We didn't demo the EPs. It was only The Greatest Living Englishman. But that would have helped Andy anyway. And I'm sure that was part of Martin's thought process on it. Hmm. Yeah, I remember Martin telling me that uh, he sent those demos to Andy, and Andy said, "We've got half an album here." And Martin, yeah. you know, pissed Martin off, but then he went and wrote like you know <laughs> a couple of more sol real solid songs, making that album as great. As yeah, I, I think I think it's a funny album, the, the Great Living Englishman. In fact, it's the same with the Off White album. In fact, it's the same with all of Martin's uh, albums and material. There isn't one bad song. You know, every single track on that is something I was deeply proud to release, you know. And when I signed, so how, it, how I came about signing him is when I set up Humbug, um, Andy McQueen, who, who was a, a great uh, music industry person, he had a label with Captain Sensible called Deltic Records, which had Martin Yule signed on as um, the Brotherhood of Lizards, right, which was a band him and Nelson who went on to be a new model army rip. And so I'd actually originally signed Captain. And so me, uh, me, Captain and Andy went off to see Johnny Moped one evening. And the support was Martin. Uh, and uh, and uh, Martin, I knew, I didn't really know him from the cleaners from Venus. I knew him from the Brotherhood of Lizards. <coughs> and Martin, um, we, we all went for Chinese afterwards. And I just got speaking to Martin, I said, I've got to sign you. I've really got to sign you. I love the, the Brother the Lizard stuff. So it really came about from going off to Johnny Moped gig and the Chinese afterwards with all of us. And, uh, and then I think that was probably on the Friday and on the, on the Monday, Martin turned up with the demos. You know? <laughs> so it, it was, I, I, I re Martin re may recall it differently. I recall it literally being that quick. Excellent. So, yeah, and, and again, it's, uh, yeah, it was a great move. And Andy Partridge was a wonderful man to work with. I mean, a truly gentleman, a, you know, a beautiful human being. And it was a difficult time for Andy because, um, you know, I, I think I, I'm, Martin's spoken about this and, and Andy probably has as well. And I, I feel quite comfortable telling you it, but we were recording at Andy's house. And at the time, Andy was going through a divorce with his wife, who was still there in the house. Yeah, and it would be, you know, tell Andy... I'm doing this, you know, tell Andy I'm going out or whatever. You know, no one would talk to each other in the house. And I think it, in some extent that may have helped the album because it may have got Andy just to go, I'm not interested in what fuck's going on there and I'm just going to put my head, heart and soul into this. So, yeah, but it was, a, it was quite strange because of that situation as well at the time. Mm. Now, having all these, like, eccentric geniuses on the label, 
what was that like? Was it was it trouble of like reining them in and doing stuff? Or it seemed more like a family to me. Oh yeah, very much. Yeah, I I like that Andy Warhol factory mentality. So you know where everyone worked together. So you know, reckless Eric would turn up and he'd always bring a tin of uh, a jar of homemade jam to the office. <laughs> you know, and that that you know that's what it was. It wasn't about drugs. It wasn't about rock and roll. It was about uh, you know homemade jam. Yeah. That was humbug. Homemade jam. You know, and so it was like a family. So we got everybody to work with each other where we could. Uh, we got, uh, you know, Louis Philippe did the second uh, Martin Newell album, produced it brilliantly. And then we, we had everybody just working with everybody in some way or other. And we were very good. Whenever we made any money, we threw these ridiculous parties. We always did that. We always did the world's, we always did the in music industry's first Christmas party, which was always in June. <laughs> you know, and we'd hire snow machines and we'd hire uh, rodeo reindeer and we'd have Father Christmas coming in, you know. And St uh, Steve Strange would always turn up as well. He was a great friend of mine. I went on and I did some management for him at the time. So he, he'd be like, shall I get, hire a camel? It was a conversation once. Shall I hire a camel and ride to it on a camel? I remember that conversation going on. So we had these wonderful Christmas parties. You know, Monty, this great artist, Monty. I don't know if you've right, ever yeah. listened to Monty recordings. I mean, you know, absolutely brilliant. He'd come from the Dubious Brothers, uh, who, who'd had a number of albums out, played at Glastonbury. He'd be there, you know. So it was like this big family do, always a big family do. You know, nobody, I don't, none of the artists ever argued with each other. They all supported each other, every single one of them. It was really beautiful. I think they, there was, uh, nobody was really, um, you know, it was such difficult times for a lot of these artists, particularly the older ones, that there wasn't, the competition between them, there was these huge levels of respect. You know, T.V. Smith, you know, what a genius songwriter. You know, and these, you know, so they, they, there was history between all of these artists before I picked them up, or in many cases there was. But um, they, they worked together beautifully, to be honest. Excellent. Big family. I remember one party we did, and I think uh, myself uh, and uh, my ex-wife had stayed up late at night uh, making many, many dope cakes, <laughs> hash cakes, which, uh, which were put in the buffet without warning, uh, oh, wow. as I remember it. And so, so you'd have these monumental uh, – it's a pity we didn't film everything that went on. It was just, it was just quite marvellous. There was talk of a humbug movie, though, right? Well, I think that that's one thing that I may even return to one day, which is, uh, which is uh, I always wanted to make a humbug movie. And it, it's called Sometimes the Devil Dresses as a Gentleman, Sometimes I Dress as an Englishman. And uh, I only know the last scene of it, which is the SAS in their full breathing apparatus with their machine guns and everything, all dressed in black, standing there singing Jerusalem as a choir. <laughs> but you, but in this, you can hardly make out what they're saying because of the breathing apparatus. So you, you have sort of 20 men dressed in black with machine guns and ready and breathing apparatus masks going. <laughs> I know that is the ending of the movie. And so somehow I have to, I have to one day make that movie and finish it off and, and have that scene. That's too good a scene never to be not made. Yeah. Now the title, I mean, the, the look was very important to you as well. You were always a big fan of the top hat. Uh, do you know, it's, 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 it goes back to my dislike of anti-pop stars. Uh, you know, I, I grew up sort of in the 70s, you know, glam rock, et cetera, like we all did, and, and loved all of that stuff. And so to me, uh, a musician had to look like a musician. When you walk down the street, don't be anonymous, walk down the street so people turn and go, fucking hell, look at that, that's a musician. So, yeah, I think the, the instant I signed Martin, actually, was because he wore a top hat. So I, uh, I'm just like, you're wearing a soft hat, you're signed, right? Don't, you don't demo anything. Don't, don't even tell me your name. Don't even do, I don't even know what I know if you can play music. You could be wearing a soft hat, you're signed, you know? So for me, yeah, I, I don't, didn't like an anonymity of artists. You know, pop stars had to look like pop stars. And that was really important to me, you know? They, they just look fantastic. All of, all, all of the artists look just superb, just like proper, proper pop stars, as I remember them, you know, glitter in their hair, badly put on makeup. You know, that they may have borrowed from their mum's box. You know, that's how it. That's how it had to be at that time, and it's still important to me that I still like. I still dislike the anti-pop star look. 
I like a pop star to be a pop star, mm. you know, and so it was a dress and style was important to me, you know, and, and, and Martin, as you basically see him on the sleeve of the greatest English, uh, greatest living Englishman, is pretty much how I first met Martin dressed, you know, and it's like, you're signed. And Nell was the same. You know, I think he was, uh, Nelson, when he was with him, was in, was in coattails. You signed. <laughs> you know? If anybody could find a makeup box and some, some, uh, some dressing up box or whatever, they'd get signed by Humbug at that stage. <laughs> now, like all the like, great iconic indie labels like L, Sarah, Postcard, Humbug only lasted a few years. Well, of course. Yeah. Of course. It can only be that way. Yeah. You know, because, because, because if you try to make any business sense out of it, you, you just would never do it. So what you do is, uh, well, you, you do two things, which people like L in particular did, which mm -hmm. is you, you, you try to work, work a catalogue in the background alongside this to keep it financed as much as you can. So you try to work on some older albums on some side labels just to bring money in all the time and keep it going. And, uh, like all labels, there's only a finite life in this, you know, you, you, you know, um, it may be different now. If you set up humbug now, you'd have a very different run because of the internet, you know, it's like if I go onto a damned website, like in all my life before the internet, I probably met six people who liked the damned. <laughs> six, probably. Right. And if I go onto the internet now, there's about seven and a half thousand. Right, that I could speak to instantly, hmm. you know. It, it, you know, I, it was impossible to connect with people in those days, especially if you were ignored by the, the, the press, you know, and they really disliked us. You know, they really viewed us as, what the fuck are you doing? These people are old people. There's new generations. You know, you, the, the press was trying to sell to 18-year-old kids and whatever. They didn't want 40-year-old men, you know, telling them this is how pop should be played. So... It was a really different ball game, and you know, I think we got two or three letters of how wonderful Martin was. Literally two or three. I don't think we got a review in the UK. We we employed this wonderful guy Des who did all the press for us, and it must have been like the most thankless task ever. We might as well just come here with some concrete and bricks and build a little wall on his desk, and then just hit his head on it all day for eight hours, and then go home. That would have been more productive, you know. But and say, I can't emphasise enough, you know what. The pre-internet days, um, it was really impossible to, to, to find a fan base and seal a fan base, particularly in the UK. As I say, once you go outside the UK, we've got brilliant reviews in Japan, brilliant reviews in America. I mean, really, I mean, I'm, no disrespect, Mr. Southpaw, for your, 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 your gentlemen colleagues over there, but the Americans were getting this way before the English were, you know, way before the English were. The French were getting it way before the English were, you know. So, and the Japanese were getting away before the English were. It was just the English uh, that just were not getting humbug. They just couldn't find, couldn't find them out there. You know, very few people were listening to it. Most of our product was going abroad. Wow. Difficult times, strange times. You know, it's very difficult to remember what the world was like before the internet. Yeah. But, but it was a lonely place. It was a lonely place. You know, you could put record out, go to the sort of, six major publications that were around at the time, the enemy, Melody Maker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if they told you to piss off, you know, you were then down to sort of 12 fanzines after that that had any reasonable circulation who might give you a fighting chance, it, you know, and, and John Peel, if he, you know, if he wanted to pick up on it. But that wasn't even a, a, a set piece at the time because he was very much into the grunge and, and you know, and the anti-pop you know, anti star thing. So we were, we were, again, weren't really doing what John Peel wanted. Wow. Yeah, it's really difficult. Very difficult, you know. It's quite amazing we last five years, you know. And we could have continued. I think we could have continued, but I, I sort of met with the artists at that stage. Uh, Martin had got exhausted by me at that stage because, I mean, if you take someone like Martin, which is quite an easy example, you know, Martin was coming back from Japan to his local pub in Wivenhoe and sort of like, you know, I've got a huge accolade over there, but I'm not selling records or whatever, you know. And so it's a really difficult time for those artists, you know, uh, to, to have accolade abroad, no accolade in the UK. Really, we didn't make any money. Mm. And so I think it got to about five or five, five years into it, something like that. And I thought, OK, I've done it. I've got to now move on and be a little bit more sensible, if that's the right word. Less risky. I don't think sensible is the right word. I don't think less risky is the right word. Uh, 
Uh, I don't think grown up's the right word, and I'll probably never know what the right word is. <laughs> but I had to, uh, I had to sort of alter it at that stage. So I met with the artist and said, "Look, we just can't continue." And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass the whole catalogue over to Cherry Red, who can absorb it within their company. Keep those releases out there. Make sure you guys are paid, and 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 make sure that um, they live on in the beautiful way that they should should have always lived on. So, so yeah, that that was really sort of uh, the stage it got to, which is you know you had to sort of say, okay, stop at this stage, hmm. which is good because then you had it as a thing that existed in a wonderful way. Not yeah, to I, dragged I, on. I agree with you. And look, and again, as I say, we're going back to L. Let's chat L for a minute because I loved L, but I sort of think that once uh, it got to a stage, uh, there's still L releases now. Right, but uh, after a stage, it, it wasn't L anymore. It like, wasn't L. It wasn't L. You, that's what I feel. Yeah. After a stage, it was like, well, we've got the name, we'll put other releases to it, but you, you'd sort of lost what L to me meant. Mm-hmm. And so to have continued on, I'd have had to start going, okay, let's put some stuff into Humbug that really isn't Humbug but can make money and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, I think that that was the stage where I had to go, better to stop now and there is a purity to what we've done. Uh, and there is, we haven't compromised on what we've done and we've done everything we want to do. We failed beautifully in the way that we always knew we'd fail in a Tony Wilson-esque way. And, uh, you know, and so let's stop at this stage and, and let the, and, and maybe we'll come back and do a film. You know, maybe one point we'll return and do this movie, you know, which I, I still like to do. When did you come up with the name Humbug? Probably should ask that uh, in the beginning. I, yeah, that's a, well, I don't know. I mean, I actually can't tell you where I came up with it. Uh, I can't remember how we came up with the name Humbug. The logo was drawn by my ex-wife, Julie, who, who'd studied graphic art. So she did the frog in the top hat. Uh, from the beginning, there you go. We're back to top hats yeah. again. <laughs> We're back to top hat. Maybe it should have been top hat records. Uh, and I was quite amazed that nobody had taken Humbug. I remember that before, thinking, whoa, there's nobody used the name Humbug for a label. Brilliant. And then we could have these great logos off of it, you know, like it, 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 if it ain't Humbug, it ain't worth a suck, you know, and, and things like that based on the old stiff ones. And so so we, we could build some great connotations of different things out the name Humbug. And it just, it just seemed like the most beautiful working name that, that really worked with it, you know. I love how the catalog numbers were all bar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, humbug. (laughs) And I was never an Ebenezer Scrooge. It's just, it just, again, maybe that's it. Humbug with Ebenezer Scrooge wearing a top hat. Maybe the the link to all of this is a top hat somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I think it could be. You know, you you go to Ebenezer Scrooge and I sort of envisage him in a top hat. So maybe that's even where it comes from. But I, I can't remember where the exact name came from. And I don't remember playing with any other names. I remember that just being the first name. Yeah, it's going to be Humbug. Bang, 92, and, and straight out there as Humbug. Excellent. So, yeah, great, great times. And we, saw, we ended up signing an American gentleman as well, David Yazbek, who Andy Partridge introduced me to. He, he was a really big fan. And there's a great album on Humbug, if you ever come across it, uh, Dave Yazbek's album. I haven't heard that one. Wow. No. And also, the Humbug sampler is always worth looking at, called Humbuggery. Uh, I noticed that is often up for sale on eBay. And that's got Dave Yazbek on it. It's got a selection from all the artists on there and, and some guest artists like the great Paul Bevoir uh, as well, who's on there, oh, you know. So I like his so he, he, he sort of uh, joined us on Humbug for that compilation as well, you know. And probably if I'd have kept Humbug going, I'd, I'd have uh, worked very hard to, to steal Mr. Bevoir to join us as well, you know. Oh, I, I like his records. I haven't heard them in a while. I'm going to pull those out today. Yeah, they're lovely. Yeah. Do you know what I really liked about him? What was his band? Was it The Jet Set? I think so. Uh, yeah, his early band was a jet set, if I remember rightly. And what he did is he, he, he based them a little bit on the monkeys. So they've got a car and they did it all up with the jet set and they'd have all these photos of hanging out the car. And his releases would have collectible bubblegum cards with them. And, but, you know, and I really love that. I really felt, you know, you should instantly be a pop star. Don't pretend to be a pop star. Don't build up to being a pop star. You are a pop star. Be a pop star, <laughs> you know. And, and so Bevoir had, Paul Bevoir had that. Uh, sort of principle and philosophy as well. So, you know, again, a great artist. There's so many great artists during that period who just sort of like floating around in the ether, unsigned. 
Excellent. That, that's all my questions. You got anything else you want to add about the label or anything? Anything you try and think? As I say, I, I I think it was a really beautiful period in time for me. To be honest, Mister Southport, I enjoyed every minute of it. I think it was without a business plan, which probably the best labels are, uh, and that's why they're finite. And I think that uh, if I had took enough drugs, I'd probably do it all again. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Gavin. Mr. Southport, it's an absolute pleasure to you. And, and give my regards to everyone in the colonies from here. Will do. And you look after yourself in these troubled times. And just remember, only pop music can save the world. Even more important than ever today. 92 it was important, but at this moment, music is the most beautiful thing that we all share between us. And it's the one thing that can unite us all in troubled times. It can get us through the deepest and darkest problems, and it can bring us all together again. Excellently said. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. And if you haven't had the pleasure yet of listening to anything on Humbug, I hope you rectify that immediately. Martin Newell's The Greatest Living Englishman is the classic to go to, you know, probably the epitome of humbug. I mean, he's got a top hat right on the cover. But also, like with Kevin bringing Martin and Andy Partridge together, these two, you know, genius English eccentrics, you know, it's like what humbug was all about. And then Martin's next record, the Off-White album, produced by L Records alumni Louis Philippe, it's got some wonderful stuff on it, too. Goodnight Country Girl and The Girls in the Flat Upstairs. Woo! That one's been getting stuck in my head a lot this year. Got those Captain Sensible albums, too. And Martin used to write with Captain Sensible. And yeah, one of my other favorite songwriters, Mikey Georgeson, was on Humbug, too. With David Devon and his spirit wife's Pimlico single. Pimlico, man, it's such a wonderfully unique pop tune. I think it was my first favorite Devon song as they were on their way to becoming one of my favorite bands. Had Mikey on the show a few months back. It's all coming together, you know. If you're digging this, you know, ratings, reviews, shares, all much appreciated. And there's the story podcast, The Young Southpaw Part of an Hour, over at youngsouthpaw.com, along with a bunch of videos and stuff. The collections and the albums are over at youngsouthpaw.bandcamp.com. I'm still psyched about that great quietest review I got for the Lost Archimedes album. Woo! Good stuff, man. I'm going to play you out now with the title track from Martin Newell's classic album, this is Tribute to the Greatest Living Englishman.
crash. Oh, oh, oh.